Amen. We'll turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we will hit the ground running in the first book of the New Testament. Uh, on the first Sunday of January, we set out to journey through the entire Bible this calendar year, which was a, a, a big task uh, to do. And uh, we ended a couple weeks ago the Old Testament as we went through the book of Esther, coming to the, the end of the journey through the Old Testament. We saw God all throughout this year. We've seen God make promises to actively preserve and deliver His people, to discipline them, to exile them at the hands of evil nations, and then bring them back miraculously, only to have them drift away again. And that's where we left off in, at the end of the Old Testament. And what we don't feel is the tension of the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. But all throughout this year, we've heard about the promised king from the line of David that was coming, a, a ruler who would establish God's kingdom and conquer God's enemies and deliver God's people. He would be born in Bethlehem to a virgin. He would preach the word of God with authority. He would enter into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and suffer and die and be raised back to life and bring the power that would transform the hearts of God's people into obedient servants. All, all those prophecies and promises we heard, they were from hundreds of years before they would actually happen. And so the Old Testament is, in a very real sense, promises made. And that would make the New Testament promises fulfilled or promises kept. And that's what we're going to begin hearing about today. And over the next few Sundays, we're going to take a, a close look at the, at the story of Jesus the Messiah. So excellently preserved and presented to us in four accounts called Gospels. Now, Gospel means good news. And in a very real sense, the history of Israel shows the history of sinfulness, of disobedience, and of treason against the God of all creation. Their story is bad news. It's a microcosm of the story of humanity, that we're stuck in ourselves. Because sin separates and brings suffering and death into our world, the story of the Old Testament shows us how horrible sin is. It shows us how bad that bad news really is. I mean, I mean when you're getting bad news... Uh, sometimes we might think, well, is it bad news or is it really bad news? Well, this is really, really, really bad news. It's, a, it's bad news about you. It's bad news about me. And we see it in Israel. The story of Israel is our story. And so as we come to the end of the Old Testament the, and to the beginning of the New Testament, we're about to hear of God's gracious action to redeem and restore sinful humanity. And as we begin to hear... These stories about Jesus, we don't want to forget all of the stories of the Old Testament we've, that we've heard so far this year. And you might say, well, why? That's then. This is now. We, we, want, to, we want to begin refocusing on the, on the New Testament. And I would tell you it's because in Luke chapter 24, Jesus himself said that all of those stories from the Old Testament pointed to him. And so we want to recognize that, that Jesus is the true and better Hosea who refused to give up on his people even after they had betrayed him again and again. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who preached salvation willingly to God's enemies. And instead of being resentful of God's mercy toward them, he wept tears of compassion for them, voluntarily plunging himself into the sea of God's judgment to save them. Jesus is our suffering servant from Isaiah, wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. Jesus is the true and better Jeremiah, who not only told us what we ought to do, but imparted to us the spirit 
that he would give us the ability to do. Jesus is the true and better David who defeated the giant of death all alone while we stood silent on the sidelines and just watched. Jesus is the true and better Boaz, the kinsman redeemer of Ruth, ransoming his family. He is, the true, he is the Passover lamb presented by Moses. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who transformed his betrayal into salvation for his treacherous family. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who provided himself on the altar of sacrifice in our place. Jesus is the true and better ark of Noah into which we flee for shelter from God's judgment. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's first promises. He is the conquering descendant foretold in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve, who would crush the deceiving serpent underneath his feet. Because as we dive into the Gospels this morning, recognize that each one of these writers, often called evangelists, that is proclaimers of good news, they, they wrote their message to a specific audience, portraying Jesus as the Redeemer to that group and ultimately to the whole world. Therefore, this story is truly our story. This story is our story. And so this story of the Old Testament will naturally flow into the story of the New Testament, telling the truth about your past, defining your present, and determining your future. And so let's look at this Gospel of Matthew to see why it comes first here in the, Old Test I mean, in the New Testament. And so Matthew had a specific purpose. You see, while Mark... Well, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. While, uh, go back, go back. My slideshow's acting up on me. My bad. Here we go. Okay. So Matthew had a very specific purpose of being put first in the New Testament. It, because it was seen as, as just naturally flowing from Malachi into this New Testament. You see, Matthew was a disciple of Jesus. He was a Jew, but he was an outcast among his own people because he was a tax collector. In Mark and Luke, he's known as Levi. And if you remember anything about, uh, about tax collectors in their day, they were seen as, as people who betrayed their own people, the, the Jewish nation. Because what they would do is they would go and they would collect taxes for Rome from the Jewish people. And in collecting taxes, they skimmed a little bit off the top, or sometimes a lot off the top, and they became very wealthy while their own people were very impoverished. And so Matthew was hated. In fact, if you're Jesus, like, and, you, and if you were thinking from a purely carnal, fleshly mind, you wouldn't pick Matthew as your disciple. Because Matthew is not the kind of guy that you want to use to win your people. Matthew's the opposite of that guy. And yet at the same time, not only does, Matthew, not only does, God, uh, does Jesus choose Matthew to be his disciple, Matthew is here set apart at the first of the New Testament, and he says, I'm here to reach my people with the message of Jesus. Matthew is, in, in one sense, a missionary to the Jewish people. Because for, for between 30 and 40 years after Jesus ascended, the, the Matthew and the other apostles went around preaching the message of Jesus. And like many other preachers, a, a common style and a targeted ministry arose uh, out of their preaching. And so specifically, Matthew wants to show how Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. And he had three main goals as he wrote. It, in all of the 28 chapters in the book of Matthew, Matthew had three goals. First of all, he wanted to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David. 
The one foretold from long ago, he wanted to proclaim Jesus as the new Moses, and he wanted to proclaim that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And so uh, as he is constantly referring to Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, and as he's constantly telling us about how, uh, how these scriptures were fulfilled from the Old Testament, we're going to see how Matthew specifically targets the Jewish people in these three ways. And so that's going to provide the structure of the rest of this message, as well as the structure of Matthew's book. And so in the first three chapters, Matthew presents Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Now that's not only, that doesn't just mean that Jesus died for the Jews, but that means that he came from the Jews to die for the world. And let's be honest, if you've been reading through your Bible this year, passages like chapter one are where we really struggle. First of all, we can't pronounce the names, right? I mean, just to be honest. But secondly, we're like, this doesn't pertain to me. Why does this even matter? I want to show you this because, I, once again, this is one of those things that, that I've, I've, I've heard before, but I'm seeing in depth now. And I, want to, I want to just show you how cool this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is. Now, Matthew and Luke both begin with the genealogy of Jesus, but Matthew has a specific purpose in his genealogy. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. After he goes through all of these names that you can't pronounce, I can, I can pronounce a, a few of them. Uh, it says, so all the generations of Abraham to David were 14, remember that. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to, to the Christ, 14 generations. So three sets of 14, right? Well, remember in the Jewish mind, the number seven represented something very unique. And without looking at the screen, who can tell me what it represents? All of you looked at the screen. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. Uh, what does it represent? Completion. Yeah, perfection or wholeness, right? Completion, perfection, or wholeness. And, and once again, if Matthew is a Jew, thinking with a Jewish mind, writing to Jews who are thinking with Jewish minds, we've got to step back for a moment and try to understand it from their perspective. All right? And so, so I just want to show you what this means, okay? That... Uh, in the Jewish understanding, if the number seven truly did represent fullness or complete, completeness, then they would, have, they would have immediately seen 14 as what? Two sets of seven, right? So they're seeing completeness, 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 leading all the way up to Jesus. Matthew is basically telling them that God has superimposed his perfection onto world history, shaping it entirely and perfectly around Jesus, because history is his story, right? He has shaped history to do what? To bring Jesus at a very specific time. But if you'll indulge me some more, we'll, we'll, we'll look at it a little bit more. So you have these three sets of 14, which we've, we've already said breaks down into six sevens, right? Well, these six sevens, these six sevens would have been, they, the Jewish people would have seen this as something of uh, like, like they would have brought them tension, okay? So some of you in here um, are, are not like me, okay? And I'll, I'll just brag on my wife for a second here because, because God, God completed me when he made Mandy. And uh, this, this past, these past couple weeks while I was gone, my wife, she, I don't know if you call it like a, a kind of nesting or whatever, but I come back and things are painted. Like, I, like things are immaculate, immaculately like organized. 
she tackled a room in our house, which, which the girls are forbidden to enter. It's my bathroom. And uh, it's, it's, it's not, I'm not, I'm not the, the cleanest person in the world, and so there's stuff. St- I have piles everywhere, and I know what, what's in those piles, but it, 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 it kind of drives her crazy. And so she tackled that, and I walk in, and I'm like, oh, wow. Like, it's all organized and beautiful. And so she did the same thing to my office, uh, which is a miracle in itself that she made it and she survived. But like in my office, I went in there <laughs> this morning. I brought some stuff in there that, that I had from the trip, and I kind of just set it on the shelf. And she came in there, in there this morning. What did she notice? The very first thing. That's not supposed to be there. Some of y'all are wired that way, right? I'm not wired that way. I'm like, well, it's just, I just set it right there. I'm, I'm just, you know. It's not going to stay there permanently. Now, she's thinking in her mind, yeah, it will. It's going to be there next week, too, right? But some of y'all are that way. Like, you see, like, three things that are like this, and then one that's like that, and you're like, "Uh uh-uh, we got to go fix that, right? I mean, I saw a guy the other day. He's a new homeowner, and and he actually installed a new light, light switch cover, right? And he aligned the screws to where they were all perfectly vertical with each other. And I was like, that's a new level right there. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine being that way. But it bothered him that when he would go in the room and the screws would be like slightly turned, right? Well, we've got to understand that for the Jewish mind, when they saw 14, 14, 14, they also saw 7, 7, 7, 7, 7, 7. And they would have said, okay, wait, that means that there's all of this completion and this perfection and this wholeness until you get to the fact that there's only six sevens, we need another seven. And that's what Matthew is saying. Jesus has come to be that perf- like the perfection of all perfections. Galatians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 talk about it being the fullness of time. It was, like, it was almost like the, the time was, was just pregnant with purpose, if you will. And Matthew's pointing to that saying, saying, you guys, you guys recognize that God was preparing history for Jesus to come. And we don't feel that when we just read through all these names. But a Jew would have read that, and he would have been counting, and he would say 14, 14, 14, and he would have gotten to, the, to verse 17 and said, oh, wow. So my kinsman, Matthew, is saying that Jesus holds this special position out of all the Jews that have ever lived, this Jesus is coming for this generation to fulfill this purpose at this perfect time. And from this very first chapter, they would have been like, so, so he's different. And Matthew just continues because he continues talking about Jesus as the true and better Moses. It's not just that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the true and better Moses. And in chap- from chapters 4 through 25, we are, we're kind of exposed to this main section of the book of Matthew. Now, Moses was a central figure in the entirety of the Old Testament because he was the leader who, delivered, uh, who was used by God to deliver Israel out of Egypt. He was the one that delivered the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses was the one that led them to the edge of the Promised Land. And so Moses, in the Jewish mind... Once again, once again, because Matthew is writing to Jews, Moses in the Jewish mind was, was, was ultimate as far as 
people that God had used. There's Moses and Abraham and David, and all these people are really important in the Jewish mind, but Moses held a very special place. Because you think about it, in a time of great oppression, Moses was raised in Egypt. He brought the people of God across the Red Sea. He was in the wilderness for 40 years, and he received the old covenant of the law of God from the mountain. And Matthew reveals that Jesus is the true and better Moses. So look at chapter 2. Where, did Jesus, where was Jesus born, uh, or, or where did Jesus uh, flee to right after he was born? Verse 13 says that they went to Egypt. And once again, Matthew, you see him quoting Old Testament prophecy when he says in verse 15, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so Matthew points to this and says, First thing, first way that Jesus is the true and better Moses. He was raised in Egypt. Chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. Verse 15, Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus was baptized, and immediately up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. When the Jews thought about Moses, they thought about Moses being in the Red Sea and the presence of God coming down and parting the waters there. And they would have seen Jesus' baptism as another way that Jesus was a true and better Moses. And in Matthew chapter 4, just like, Je- I mean, just like Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years, now Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. And then Matthew chapter 5 through 7, just like uh, just like Moses stood on Mount Sinai and delivered the word, uh, the old covenant of the law, now in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus stands on the side of the mountain delivering the new covenant. But this idea of, of not just, uh, this idea of teaching is not just with the Sermon on the Mount, though. Uh, Matthew divides the majority of his gospel account into five different sections of authoritative teaching by Jesus. Now remember, how many books did Matthew uh, I mean, uh, how many books did Moses write in the Old Testament? Five, right? And so these five sections of teaching that make up the bulk of Matthew, they all are accounts of Jesus doing something and then Jesus giving a block of teaching. And these are supposed to correspond to the five books of the Old Testament that were written by Moses. And so once again, Matthew saying that Jesus is the true and better Moses. In these sections, Jesus announces God's kingdom. He brings the kingdom into different people's lives. He deals with various responses to the kingdom coming and different expectations about the Messiah. And he sees Jewish leaders utterly reject his authoritative teaching, teaching because Jesus was a threat to their power. And Matthew highlights the people that embrace Jesus in the book of Matthew were people who respond in faith. And when they do respond in faith, they experience transformation. And so what have we seen thus far? Matthew's main message is that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus, as the authoritative teacher of Israel, he is the new, true, and better Moses. But the highlight, the highlight of Matthew's gospel, his, his good news to the Jewish people is that Jesus, thirdly, is Emmanuel. That he is God with us. Matthew chapter 133, the book starts with a promise of God's absolute nearness in the coming of Jesus. If you're still close to there, look at Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. After this incredible account of Mary 
and Joseph being visited by the angel and being uh, told about Jesus's uh, birth, telling him, uh, telling Mary that, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, telling Joseph that uh, they would call his name Jesus in verse 23. Once again, it's uh, Matthew writes and says that the angel told him that this was to fulfill prophecy. Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, this is Matthew's main goal, is to show that Jesus is God with us. Jesus is, is not just the Son of God, but He is God who is near to us. He's, he's come near to us in our sin and our brokenness. Because the fact that we saw all throughout the Old Testament is that it's our sin and our brokenness that continues to create distance between us and God. We can't draw near to God in our sin. This is the problem of all problems in the entirety of the Bible. Your sin from the very moment, your sin from the very moment that sin came into the world has been continuously separating you from God. Why did God create the Garden of Eden? So that men could dwell with God. Men and women could dwell with God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they were kicked out of the garden. They were separated from God's presence. And that's when God established the covenant with Abraham to bring that rescue mission, to bring that restoration of that purpose for us to be with him. And so Matthew connects these dots and says, guys, when Jesus came, Jesus is God with us. There's no confusing this in the Jewish mind that this is exactly what Matthew intended for the, to convey in the entirety of his gospel. And so in the final three chapters of the book, Matthew uh, 26 through 28, you can turn there. Matthew 26 through 28, Matthew declares to us how God is ultimately going to deal with the problem of our sin. Now, just as you're turning there, recognize we must not only use the same vocabulary as God, but we must use the same dictionary as God as well. When you, if, I, if I sat down with you and I said, what's the greatest problem in your life right now? We would get a huge, broad spectrum of answers. We, we, would, we would get all kinds of answers from, uh, from money problems to relationship problems to job problems and, and problem after problem after problem after problem. But do you recognize that when the Bible describes your greatest problem, it, it, it doesn't describe a problem outside of you. The Bible describes your greatest problem as something inside of you. This is significant for us to really comprehend who Jesus is and what Jesus is supposed to be for us. Why did he come? Jesus came, according to Matthew, to deal with the problem of sin. It's unpleasant for us to talk about, and it's going to get even more unpleasant because of, of what Jesus himself is going to describe as what it's going to take. But this is ultimately how we understand our salvation and why Jesus came. And so Jesus, in 
the last several chapters, Matthew chapter 26 is, is the beginning point. Jesus begins to point to, he's recognized he's, going to be, he's been rejected, he's going to be crucified, and he sits down to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. Now remember that Passover meal was instituted by God through Moses in Egypt to celebrate God's deliverance. And in order for them to be delivered, they would slaughter a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost. And when the angel of death would come that night as the final plague in Egypt, it would, that blood would be a way to uh, allow God's wrath to pass over that Hebrew family. And so Jesus is getting together with his disciples to celebrate this meal, which points back to something that happened in Egypt. And he looks at them and says, I know you guys have always grown up remembering that this, or knowing that this was something uh, that we remember about what's happening in Egypt, but I'm telling you it points to me right here, right now. Sitting in, in this room with you right now, your greatest problem is your sin. It's not Egypt, it's not Rome. Your greatest problem is your sin. And to deal with your sin, my body is going to be broken. He takes that bread and he rips it in half. And he says, this is my body. And then he takes the cup that is wine, red, red wine. And he looks at it and he says, this is my blood that will be shed for you. Because your sin demands a sacrifice of life. And so a broken body, blood poured out. Jesus reveals himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, Isaiah's suffering servant. That instead of judging the people who would reject him, Jesus would be judged and punished on their behalf. And what is described in Matthew 26 is is fulfilled in Matthew chapter 27 as Jesus is delivered up to Pilate and as he is hung on a cross. Jesus didn't, didn't just say, I'm going to be judged and punished. He actually goes through with it, offering himself up as that sacrificial lamb. And in his teaching, Jesus told the people that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, that they would receive the sign of Jonah. They would receive the sign of Jonah. Because at this point when Jesus dies, the disciples are thinking, well, we just wasted three years of our life. Jesus was obviously not who he said he was. Even though he told them my body would be broken, my blood would be poured out, they said that can't happen. If this guy is really the Messiah, that can't happen. But it did happen. And, and throughout those three days, their minds are taken back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, where Jesus told them that they would receive the sign of Jonah. Well, what happened to Jonah? Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale and then came back, right? The sign of Jonah is that Jesus would spend three days in the grave and that he would be raised from the dead. And that's exactly what happens in Matthew chapter 28. So you see these final three chapters are pointing us to what God does to bring about our salvation, to bring about our sin being taken away. That Jesus had to suffer, to die, and that he would be, rose again. He, he would be raised again. And so chapter 28 begins with Jesus ra being raised from the dead and encountering his disciples. 
saying that I've, he says that I fully and finally dealt with the sin of humanity, and now he comes, and it, Matthew kind of ends very quickly, and he, he gives this great commission to his disciples. And then he ascends. But this is the point of me saying all this, is that this is under that subheading of Jesus being Emmanuel, God with us. It began, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, where it quotes the Old Testament prophecy that Jesus is Emmanuel, is going to be God with us. But then look at how it ends, Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. It says, Teaching them to observe that I have command, all that I have commanded you, and behold, what? I'm with you always. This is Matthew's main point. How do we know that? Because he begins with it, and because he ends with it. He begins with it, and he ends with it. That Jesus is God's presence with us. I recently read a story, and my heart welled up with joy, saying, now that's, that's true love. There was a man named Michael Joyce who had been married to his wife, Linda, for over 34 years. Michael, who was 68, he started showing symptoms of Alzheimer's several years earlier. Linda, being a devoted and loving wife, uh, she became his main caregiver. And as so many who take care of their loved ones through illness, she watched him go downhill to the point where he couldn't even, he couldn't even speak in complete sentences. And she described their life as filled with much sorrow. And I mean, many of you who've heard accounts or maybe you, you've even experienced your, it yourself, you just see your loved one forgetting all of these precious moments from their life. But Linda said that one night that Michael shook her awake in the middle of the night. And that she woke up and she looked at him, and Michael has tears running down his face. And with this huge smile on his face, he looks at his wife of 34 years, that he's forgotten that they're married. And he looks at her and he says, Will you marry me? And it's the middle of the night, and she's caught off guard by this, and she just kind of, of course I will. She doesn't, you know, she doesn't, how could you forget that, you know, you we're married? <laughs> you know, she doesn't deal with him that way, she, of course. Because in her mind, she's thinking, he won't remember in the morning. So they go back to sleep, and he wakes up the next morning, and he says, we need to make a date. And so they go and they set a date, and she keeps thinking, he's going to forget again. He's going to forget again. He's going to forget again. But the morning of the date that they set, Michael woke up and he said, today's the day. And Linda said, in the midst of all the frustrations and the sadness of Alzheimer's, this day has been full of joy. And uh, I don't know if you can see them. This is actually them, Michael there on the left, and he's actually giving a thumbs up. And, uh, and Linda there, she's, she's about four years younger than him. They got married all over again. He had the, the vows written by, written by uh, uh, or I mean, uh, read by the officiant of the wedding. But I, I read that story, and I said, I said, it's amazing that he couldn't remember the fact that they were married. 
But the fact that he loved her was unforgettable. Friends, when we read these gospel accounts, that should be the main thought that rises to the surface in us. Now that's love. That is love. When you read the Gospels, you read about God's pursuit of you. You read about God's sacrifice for you. You read about God's love for you. To Matthew, he was writing to Jews saying this, God wants to be near to you. And we can read that today and we can recognize that those promises are ours as well. And so I want to encourage you as we go through these gospels over the next several weeks. I want you to understand why these gospels were written, understand the original context, understand all this really important information that we're dealing with. But I want you to recognize that this is God's love testimony to you. This is what he has done. And here's why that matters. We are unlovable people <laughs> in many moments in our lives, in many seasons of our lives. And yet God has loved us with an everlasting love. And every single day, you live around people who are the same way. They may be unlovable people. And how are you going to love them? How are you going to love your enemies? How are you going to love people who hurt you? How are you going to love people that slander you? How are you going to love people that lie to you? How are you going to love people who maybe are just indifferent towards you? It's not something you manufacture and you just try to come up with and say, well, I'm going to love these people today, you know, because that's what God's told me to do. What you do is just like that tree planted by the streams of living water, you put your roots down deep in something that is, that is factual and that is the love of God for you. And how do you know that? Because you read about what God has done. And as you put your roots deep down in this story, once again, it defines your present and gives you the transforming power of the gospel within you so that you can love radically, that you can run to the brokenness of others and you can love them with the same kind of love that God has loved you with. You need the love of God so that you can overflow the love of God. And if that's why God has sent Jesus to deal with our sin and to put his love inside of us so that we can love other people with it, then why, what right do we have to define Christianity as anything else but that? And so as we read this, would you devote yourself to recognizing that this is God's gracious action to move towards you even when you are unlovable? And in reading that, that just like we're charmed and we love this story about this man and this woman and they, that, that even though he can't remember that they're married, that he remembers his love for her. That just like your heart wells up with joy when you, like, I, like mine did, when we read or we hear about that story, that your heart would well up with joy as you read these Gospels. Because if that's love, and it is, then this is real love. And we and our world needs this kind of love testimony today. And God calls us not just to read about it, not just to know it, but to live it as well.
And that's what God's calling us to do today. And so as we come to a time of invitation, I want you to recognize that God has given you this truth today for this purpose. It's, here, here's, here's the crazy thing. Is that what we've talked about with the Old Testament is about faith in a coming Messiah. That's what God was calling them to have. We read these testimonies and recognize that God is calling us to what? Faith in a Messiah that has already come. This is what Christianity is about. If Jesus is not the driving force, the engine that, that, that drives your daily life, then you haven't gotten it yet. Those are Jesus' words. That if he is not at the center of your existence, if he is not the thing that, that wakes you up in the morning, if he's not the thing that consumes your mind during the day, if he's not the, not the person that you're talking to as you're going to sleep at night, then there, there are areas of your life where you need to submit and surrender to his lordship because Jesus is Lord. If he has risen from the dead, just like that awesome song, I love that song, the song the choir sang uh, during the, the testimony time, if he is truly Lord then you don't make him Lord with your life. You surrender to his lordship. And that's what he's calling you today, to recognize that he poured out all of his strength and all of his power to come and love you with an everlasting love. And that's what he wants to use you to show this world. And so today, if you've got areas of your life that are unsurrendered, if you've made decisions that you need to make public today, if you've got areas where you need to, to be prayed for, that's why I'm down here at the front. I'm not down here to look pretty because that doesn't happen, okay? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm down here because I recognize that you have needs. And that, there, there, are, there are many seasons in life where confession of those needs and asking for prayer is exactly God's design for you to get to where you need to be. And it could be that staying frozen where you are is the thing that's keeping you in bondage to something. And so when we have these times of invitation, don't just, don't, don't just stand there. Like, connect with God. Sur submit and surrender this truth. Rejoice at what God said to us today. Rejoice at this testimony of love. And as you rejoice, as God calls, and I say this at the end of every message, as God calls, you come. And so I'm going to pray for us, then I'm going to have us, we're going to enter into this time of invitation, and I hope as God calls, you will come. Let's pray.